0: Have you ever been listening to a song or watching a movie or maybe just reading a book and some line or lyric just jumped out at you and lodged itself into your brain? Well, many, many years ago, that very thing happened to me. I was listening to a new song and I was struck by the lyric you just read on your screen. The question that captured my attention was this, do you need a lot of what you got to survive? The first time those lyrics hit my ear, I couldn't help but ponder that question. What exactly do I need in order to survive? On the one hand, I suppose, in order to survive and have my needs met, I really only need food, water, and shelter. I mean, that's all you really need to have biological life but aren't we all looking for something more than just biological life? Something more than simply existing or getting by? Aren't we all looking for a full, rewarding, abundant life? Surely as complex as human beings are, our needs must go deeper than just those immediate physical needs that are so glaringly obvious. Years before a modest mouse, another band, perhaps you've heard of them, the Beatles, said that all we need is love. Really? Is that all we need? Love? That's it? Well, assuming that there's also food and water in addition to love, perhaps that's getting a little closer. But even earlier than the Beatles, an American psychologist named Abraham Maslow suggested that we human beings actually have many different needs that build on each other progressively. In what has come to be known as Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, we can see exactly what Maslow believed we all needed in order to survive and thrive. Maslow's theory begins with the notion that our most basic needs are, in fact, our physiological needs, the need for food, the need for water, the need for shelter. Only when these most basic needs are met, so the theory goes, will someone turn their attention to their next level of need, which is their need for safety and security. In this second stage, once someone has received adequate sleep, food, and water, they will then be motivated to seek out safety and security to ensure that those core needs for food, water, shelter, and the like will continue to be met in the future. Now here in this third stage, once we have had our physiological and security needs met, then we will be motivated to meet our need for belonging, At this stage, we will seek to meet our need to be attached to a group. We will seek to belong to a society or club that provides deep relationships and anchors us to others. At this stage, we seek to attach ourselves to a tribe where we feel we genuinely belong. Now, according to this theory in stage four, once one has become a part of a larger group, they will then almost immediately seek to meet their need to be esteemed. You see, it's kind of funny. The moment we feel we completely belong to a group, most of us tend to seek to differentiate ourselves somewhat from that group. I know I operate that way. I tend to like movies and music and TV shows that are a little off the beaten path. Maybe it's the contrarian in me or some silly desire to be unique but I've always tended to drift towards things that are a little less mainstream. And more than one time, my enjoyment of a band or a TV show or a movie has been spoiled as I've gone to a concert or event where I'm surrounded by thousands of other people just like me. Perhaps you've been there too. On the one hand, you're in pursuit of belonging to a group, but you also have found yourself asking questions like, How am I unique in this group? How can I differentiate myself from my peers? How can I be recognized and respected by others in my group? Well, that's what stage four is all about. That's the stage where we address our need to play a unique role and be esteemed by others in our group or tribe. And finally, as one resource put it, only if we eat and drink and sleep enough, and we feel safe, and we feel we belong to a group, and we still feel special and integral in relation to that group, only then will we progress to level five, which is defined as self-actualization. In level five, one begins attaining to their full potential, creating, producing, and becoming the most one can be. So goes Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at least as best as I can understand it. Now, regardless of whether you accept Maslow's theory or not, I'm sure you would agree that human beings, if they are to be whole human beings, have, yes, physical needs, but also many more complex needs as well. Interestingly, centuries before Maslow, the Beatles, and even Modest Mouse, we see that God in his goodness and wisdom established his church as the primary vehicle to meet these complex needs that we all have. Today we will see in Acts chapter two, as we wrap up this series, that whether the needs are physical needs, security needs, the need for belonging, the need for esteem, or the need to have purpose, the church, when it is firing on all four cylinders, is uniquely positioned to meet each and every one of those needs. So at this time, I wanna invite you to grab your Bible or device and turn to Acts 2.42, where we will see how the early church was able to consistently meet all of these needs. Acts chapter 2.42 says this. They devoted themselves, that is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Now before we get to our main focus today, we first need to acknowledge the anchor and foundation of the church in Acts. Verse 42 shows us that which is upstream from all the love, all the brotherhood, and all the exemplary meeting of needs that we will see today. You see, the very first practice mentioned as the primary defining characteristic of that early church is that it was made up of individuals who had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the church in Acts was made up of people who had devoted themselves to studying, devoted themselves to understanding, and devoted themselves to living out God's word. This first and primary devotion is what set the conditions for the amazing love, thriving community, and hearty meeting of needs that we will now consider. So, first, let's consider in verses 44 through 46 how God's Spirit led the early church to address the physical needs of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 44 again says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and prayers. And then if you look at verse 46, it says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And if you back up and look at verse 44 and 45, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, pop quiz, do you remember Maslow's first area of need? You guessed it, our physical needs. The need for food, water, shelter, and all the rest. Well, here we see how the first century Christians took ownership of helping meet the needs of fellow believers. At first blush, when we read this passage Doesn't it almost sound as if the early church was practicing something resembling communism? I mean, here you have people, quote, having all things in common and redistributing resources to address the needs of others. What exactly is going on here? In short, the early church was not practicing communism. It would be both anachronistic and inaccurate to describe the early church that way. We know this because you can clearly see in verse 46, it states that they met in their homes. So clearly they maintained their own private property. That being said, what did happen regularly in the early church is that when someone in the church had a physical or material need, it was a common practice for other Christians to step up and meet the needs of their fellow Christian brothers and sisters. Many would liquidate assets and then the money would be given to the apostles to distribute as there was need in the church. But that wasn't the only way the early church met the physical needs of other, beloveds, uh, other believers. rather, In addition, they would give directly to Christians in need as they became aware of a need. This was seemingly the default mindset of the average believer at this time. If they saw a need and they had means... They would meet it. Now, this level of generosity may strike us as being exemplary or radical, but according to the Apostle John, this should be the baseline for generosity for everyone who calls themselves a Christian. First John 3:16 through 18 says the following: By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, do not let us love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You see, the apostle John finds it impossible to conceive of a truly born again Christian seeing their Christian brother or sister in need and refusing to meet that need if they are in a position to do so. Now I know at this point you may be thinking, but don't we need to be good stewards? What if they take advantage of my generosity? To be sure, I believe we need to be wise with our money, but when you or I close our hand to one in need, whether it's a homeless person on the street I'm not giving them one red cent. They'll probably just waste it on liquor. Or it's towards a Christian brother or sister. They should have planned better. I need to make sure I'm going to have enough money for the future. When we respond that way, honestly, are we being motivated by stewardship? Or are we being motivated by greed and a lack of confidence in God's ability to provide for us? Listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand before God one day and explain to Him that I ignored His commands to meet the needs of others, especially other Christians, in the name of being hyperscrupulous. God has designed the church to meet the physical needs of Christians and to bear one another's unreasonable burdens. And if you are a Christian, hear me now. God has designed you to be the vehicle to meet the needs of your fellow Christian brothers and sisters. One of the ways we at Grace are seeking to do this right now is through our special COVID-19 fund. One main purpose of that fund is to help address the physical needs of our covenant members that have been negatively impacted by COVID-19. So if you have not yet given to that fund, I would invite you to consider doing so. And if you are a covenant member of Grace Fellowship, Who has lost income or wages due to COVID-19, please reach out to Michelle Martin to learn more. She would love to see if we could help. Bottom line, God has designed his church, whether it finds itself in the first century or the 21st century, to meet the physical needs of other Christians and by extension, also provide safety and security for them as well. Now that we have seen how God has positioned the church to address Maslow's first two areas of need, let's go on to consider how God has designed the church to meet the need for belonging. Again, back in Acts chapter two, verses 42 and 46, it says the following, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice how the early church is described in these verses. They were characterized by fellowship, meeting together daily, and sharing meals together in their homes. Not only did belonging to the church bring with it physical and security benefits, but it also provided a family to which you could belong. The Spirit-filled church and Acts spent lots of time together. They were participants in one another's lives. They invested their time in one another and built meaningful relationships. They prayed together, ate together, conversed together, they laughed together. And I want you to notice this. There are two dimensions of how this fellowship would happen in verse 46. It says in verse 46 that this fellowship took place, first of all, in the temple, but it also says that this fellowship took place in one another's homes. I think this is huge, we have got to get this. The early church, that spirit-filled church recognized the fact that there were two dimensions to their fellowship. On the one hand, there was the formal, structured, public dimension to their Christian fellowship. You see that being expressed by them worshiping together in the temple in Jerusalem. For us, we might think of this formal dimension as kind of like the fellowship we enjoy with people at Grace when we meet in our buildings for weekend worship. This dimension of our fellowship is planned, it is formal, it is structured, and might even be described as institutional. Again, for us, that would be like the fellowship we enjoy in our planned meetings here in our church buildings. However, there's also a second dimension to the fellowship the early church practiced as well, in contrast to the formal fellowship that took place at the temple, the fellowship of the early church also consisted of regular and robust fellowship that would take place in more unplanned, spontaneous, and ways. Notice verse 46 says they met daily in one another's homes. These home meetings were much more private organic, and just a common, ordinary part of their day-to-day lives. They didn't just relegate their Christian fellowship to the formal structured times in the temple. No, they are organically, spontaneously, and often meeting for fellowship throughout the week in one another's homes. In verse 42, we read that the early church devoted themselves to fellowship, and that word fellowship carries with it the idea of something that is common. You might think of it this way. While the early church met in the temple for formal worship, it was also commonplace for them to meet with believers throughout the week, share meals, and hang out in one another's homes. I wonder, how common is it for you to spontaneously meet with other believers outside of a church building? Does your common week consist of texting Christians, meeting together for coffee, hosting believers in your home, connecting with a small group? Can it be said of you that you are devoted to fellowship? Back in March, Nikki and I celebrated our 16th year of marriage, and we have enjoyed reading different authors and listening to different speakers on the topic of marriage. You know, one of the most common pieces of marriage advice that I have routinely heard is that a married couple should make it a priority to regularly go out on dates. And hey, I love to go on dates with my wife. I love to see her dressed up and enjoy a good meal at a nice restaurant. I love the formality and time spent together out in public. It's somewhat similar to the public dimension of our fellowship, isn't it? We go to a church building at a particular time for a formal occasion, perhaps we dress up a little, and we generally have a set agenda. But you know what? As great as dates with my wife are, to tell you the truth, the vast majority of the bonding that has happened over the years with my wife has not taken place when we were dressed up, at our best, and out in public. Rather, the vast majority of our bonding and memorable moments tend to happen spontaneously, in private, in common, ordinary settings. We have done more connecting in bathrobes than in suits and dresses, more bonding over morning coffee on the porch than over a four course meal at a candlelit restaurant. Oh, don't get me wrong, I love having a nice date. And I also love when we gather together in our church buildings for corporate worship. But that is only one side of the coin, folks. If there is one good thing about this pandemic, I believe it is that we have been forced to see the limitations of a Christian life entirely hamstrung to a building and formal expressions of fellowship. The early church regularly and consistently fellowshiped or participated in one another's lives, and as a result, experienced a genuine sense, a genuine sense of belonging and community. The early church understood that for relationships to thrive, for one to truly belong to a group, and experience authentic fellowship, an occasional formal rendezvous at a religious building was simply insufficient. Rather, there must be regular, consistent fellowship that is not relegated to a religious building, but rather spills over into normal, everyday life. This is how the early church met the need for belonging. People were quickly attached to the church by hospitality, friendship, and time invested together, and as a result, that deep, deep need for belonging was richly met. Now that we have seen how the early church met both physical needs and relational needs, let's turn our attention to how the early church met the need to be esteemed by others. Remember, according to Maslow's theory, and I believe experience bears this out, while we have a strong desire to belong to a group, We simultaneously have a need to somehow stand out as unique within that group, to differentiate ourselves, to not just be a nameless, faceless person in the crowd. I mean, think of any workplace you've been a part of or any sitcom for that matter. There's the leader, the comic relief, the sarcastic one, the kind one, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is how most of us operate in the real world as well. You see, we have this deep longing to belong to a group, but we also want to play a somewhat unique role and have something distinctive about us within that group. We want to be recognized by others and valued for what we are bringing to the table. Furthermore, we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Ultimately, we want to have purpose in life. So how do Christians differentiate themselves among one another? How can they be unique within the church? How can their contributions be recognized, valued, and encouraged? And how can their life be fueled by purpose? Well, in order to answer those questions, we need to begin by considering a few verses from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7.7 says this, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 12:7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Did you notice that word each that was used in both passages? Each has his own gift. Each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Scripture teaches not just clergy, but rather every single Christian without exception is given a spiritual gift from God. And that spiritual gift is an ability or skill that God has given you for the purpose of building up his church. In other words, God has wired some of you to excel at hospitality. Others of you at administration, others of you at service, others of you at teaching God's word, others of you in evangelism, others of you in generosity. And God distributes these gifts because he has designed you and gifted you to play a unique and integral role in building up his church. Every true believer, I'm gonna say that again, every true believer is given a customized gift from God that equips them to fulfill their unique role in the church. And when the church is at its best, it actively seeks to help Christians discover and develop those gifts. So how do we go about discovering these gifts, you might ask? Well, one way people at Grace discover their gifting is by simple trial and error. Many people have simply tried serving in various ministry areas until they identify the areas that are most fulfilling and fruitful. Another way we try and help others discover their unique role in the church is through our 301 class. The 301 class is designed to help you gain clarity on how God has wired you and gifted you spiritually. Quick plug, if you have not yet taken that class, sign up for it the next time it is offered. I believe our 301 class will bless you immensely because it will help you discover your unique gifting as many within our church can testify. However you do it though, discovering your spiritual gifting is going to be key because that will help you not only feel you belong to the church, but it will reveal your unique customized role within the church. Said differently, as you discover your spiritual gifting, you will be on your way to building up and blessing others within the church by using your gifts And as your gifts bless others and contribute to the church, your fellow Christian brothers and sisters will appreciate, esteem, and encourage you for the amazing role that you are playing in the life of the church. Having seen how God has ordained the church to meet your needs for security, belonging, and esteem, let's consider that fifth and final need described by Maslow, our need for self actualization. Self-actualization carries with it the idea of experiencing purpose and meaning in one's life. It's a life lived attaining to one's full potential, solving problems and helping change others' lives for the better as well. And incredibly, we see parallels to this in Acts 2, 46 through 47. It says the following, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you catch that? Did you notice the end result of a church that is meeting all of these complex needs? and firing on all four cylinders, it is a church described as having more people saved and added to the church each and every day. You see, the early church was made up of ordinary people, just like you and me. But as these ordinary people devoted themselves to this way of life, God saved sinners and multiplied the church day after day after day, If you are a follower of Christ, the reason you are a believer today is because this has been repeating itself uninterrupted for 2000 years over the years as new disciples were added, those new disciples would devote themselves to the word of God to fellowship to generosity to discovering and developing their spiritual gifts. And then they would embrace their unique role in God's mission. And as a result, those disciples made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. We all wanna have purpose, don't we? We all wanna be part of something bigger than ourselves. We all yearn to have fulfilling lives. Those needs for purpose and fulfillment, I'm gonna tell you, they're only met for the Christian when we join ourselves to the church, embrace our unique role, and join God on his rescue mission to save sinners from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. 2,000 years ago, the church was God's chosen instrument for meeting one another's needs. And guess what? 2,000 years later, it is still God's chosen instrument for meeting one another's needs. So let's be the church. Let's devote ourselves to the word of God. Let's devote ourselves to loving, practical expressions of our generosity, both through giving at church as well as spontaneously in day-to-day life. Let's devote ourselves to formal and organic worship as well, formal and organic fellowship as well. Let's devote ourselves to discovering, developing, and deploying our spiritual gifts, grace fellowship. As we do that, on the authority of the word of God, not only should we fully expect to have all of our needs richly met, but we should also expect to see men, women, and children be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and added to the church day after day after day. Please pray with me at this time. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you for the instruction in it, but we also thank you for the examples we see in it. We thank you for giving this beautiful picture of a healthy church. And Lord, over these past three weeks, as we have seen how your Holy Spirit empowers the church, as we have seen the gospel message, which is the preaching of the church, and today, as we have seen the practice of the early church, God, we ask that you would help, please give us a heart that desires to do our part to devote ourselves to these practices. Lord, help us to emulate what we see in the church of Acts, not because they were a group of believers in the first century, not because they were close to the apostles, but because they modeled what your church is designed to do. God, we ask that you would help each and every one of us do our part to take our role and to take responsibility to meet the needs of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as we have opportunity to get on mission and to be a part of seeing people be added to your kingdom day by day by day. In short, Lord, God help us each have a laser focus on what our unique role is and making more and better disciples and meeting the needs of those in our lives. We pray all this in the strong name of Christ our Lord, amen.